and welcome to That Gabby Roslin Podcast, part of the Acast Creator Network. This week, my guest is one of the nicest people you'd ever want to spend time with, the musician and broadcaster, Jamie Cullum. His music is like a soundtrack to our lives. We chat about his new album, The Piano Man at Christmas, the complete edition, which is so magical from beginning to end. We talk about him writing the musical version of this new album, and we even end up casting it. Jason Schwartzman and Sir Sharonan, I do hope you're listening. He discusses those pinch-me moments in his life, including playing at the White House for the Obamas, how he felt watching Aretha Franklin rehearsing, and what an incredible time he had there. He tells me the best story ever about going to Puff Daddy, Sean Coombs' house, with Pharrell and what happened when he arrived for dinner in his new gold Nike trainers. We talk about movies, including The Fabulous Baker Boys with Michelle Pfeiffer and La La Land. We both rave about the brilliant musicals Come From Away and Matilda and how he is in awe of Tim Minchin's talent when it comes to that musical. After listening to this episode, do yourself a huge favour and spend time listening to his wondrous music and lose yourself in his songs. Please can I ask you a favour? Would you mind following and subscribing, please? By clicking the follow or subscribe button. This is completely and utterly free, by the way. And you can also rate and review on Apple Podcasts, which is the purple app on your iPhone or iPad. Simply scroll down to the bottom of all of the episodes. I know there have been quite a few now. And you'll see the stars where you can tap and rate and also please write a review. Thank you so much. Hello, my lovely. Hi, Gabby. How are you? I'm very well. All the better for speaking to you. And um, I have never said this to your face, but thank you because you and I toured the country together for seven months and you have no idea what I'm talking about, which is quite funny. I really don't. No. <laughs> I, was, I was like, which, which period of my life was that in? In, I'll tell you, it was almost 17 years ago. I was in When Harry Met Sally the play oh no way yeah that makes total sense now fantastic yeah because you did the music for it I did yes and and that's that's so funny because um I'd forgotten that it had toured as well it was such a busy time for me around that that era so I never quite knew what was going on but that's so great to know that you did that was it a good experience for you Oh, it was fantastic. I was a single mum with my uh, baby girl and we had the most wonderful time. But you were the backdrop to a huge transition in my life. I mean, it really was extraordinary. So you've been with me in in an extraordinary capacity every day of my life and sometimes twice a day. Well, that is, that's the nature of being in the theatre, isn't it? That's for sure. Well, there's a lot of people that would say the same about your presence in their lives as well, Gabby, that's for sure. Oh, well, you're very kind. You're very kind. Um, you're, so your Christmas album has, and I'm one of those people that doesn't like to go early. This year I have, and I think we all needed to go early with Christmas because of last year. Yeah, it's an, it's an interesting conundrum, that, isn't it? I think when you, by the nature of making a Christmas album, and I, I think I'm a slightly different to some people that make Christmas albums. I made one f- from the pure fascination of the idea of trying to create 
some songs, new songs that felt like old ones. So kind of from a songwriting perspective, I, I did it rather than I'd really like a Christmas number one or that, that kind yeah. of thing. Although obviously we all want a Christmas number one, but I've never operated necessarily in that sphere anyway. But when you make the album, of course, you make it very early in the year. So I, I wrote the songs in February, March, and I recorded them in, in June. And then the label go, yeah, we want to bring it out on uh, November the 19th. I'm like, that's that's just too early. Don't do it. And they're like, no, no, you need time to get it in people's consciousness. We need to get it on the all the digital platforms and stuff. But it's like, I don't want to be talking about Christmas. And no, I don't want to be one of those people. But by the nature of having a Christmas album out, you do have to start talking about Christmas quite early. Yeah, but actually, I do think this year we need it. And I know, I know part one came out last year and part two. I have to say, The, the Piano Man at Christmas, the song is... Uh, just if, it's interesting you said because you wanted it to sound like old songs but it sort of takes me back and it makes me go like I'm made of marshmallow it's quite extraordinary but but I think this year we need to have Christmas early I mean last year was sort of it sort of didn't exist in a weird way I know you've got kids and I've got kids and it did but it didn't do you know I feel more about that from this year actually uh, I mean oh, obviously really? I think last year I think there was a, there was the I, I, I use the word novelty not to kind of put some kind yeah, of positive no, spin know, on it, but yeah. it was a fresh feeling, and I, I, I count myself in the very lucky camp of the people who were with people that they loved in a house that they felt lucky to live in. So I, I, I was, although all my work did disappear, I, I felt I felt lucky in that sense, and some you know, dreadful things did happen, and we. We lost someone close to us, and and uh, there were it was not an, it was not an easy time in that sense. But we were together, and I have two young kids, and so that in that sense it felt it felt very lucky. And also, I did kind of busy myself with this Christmas record. You know, I was like, I thought, well, my tour's cancelled. What am I going to do? I've always wanted to write an original Christmas album, so that's what I did last year. And in some ways, that was good and bad because it just took my mind off of what was happening and it kind of gave me a purpose. I was doing homeschool stuff with with my wife uh, uh, in, the, in the mornings uh, and then we'd kind of finish around just after lunch and then I'd be working on these songs in the afternoon. So when the nature of having a Christmas album is that come the 29th of December, no one cares anymore. <laughs> it's gone. It's finished. I so thought of that. Yeah. So it's great, like it's all so exciting. Everyone's listening to it so much, and then literally you go from from hero to zero so quickly. So first of January, and I was like, right, twenty twenty one, life gets back to normal. Like I think a lot of us did, and then of course it, we realised that none of this was going to. And it, it, the first part of this year felt like the 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 hardest bit, um, uh, yes, certainly yeah. certainly for me. So in some ways, this year felt like felt like a stranger year than before so back to what you were saying before Christmas coming early you're right it really does feel like something we need that feeling of togetherness the feeling of tradition the feeling of the rituals let's gather them in bring back some normality some some of that connection some of that over indulgence and that that feeling of the warmth and the coziness of Christmas is definitely what we need do you feel a responsibility I um because you do I mean, I'm gonna, I, it's weird. I've, I've never said it out loud, but I suppose your your songs do. They do. So I feel very 
you feel very familiar to me and I you're such a big part of all of our lives and the soundtrack of our lives do you feel a bit of a responsibility when you release new stuff oh that's really kind of you to say I I, I, I love the idea I love the idea of being the soundtrack to some people's lives I think there's there's a few people on planet earth that I am but not at the not the level of some of the people I mean think about like Robbie for example I mean that is I would, someone... you remind me of one another I've said that to Robbie uh, I've I've known Robbie a very long time he's been on this podcast and he, I've known him since yeah. he was 16 and but you remind me of one another so much I take you that really as a do. I take that as a great compliment but I have to say that I don't feel any responsibility at all and that's not oh, that's to kind interesting. of I I think I'm I'm quite um I love making music and I love that people listen to it but I kind of work on something and you know I promote it and I want people to hear it but in terms of of a responsibility I'm I'm very much someone who makes stuff puts it out there and kind of moves kind of moves on to the next thing because Amazing. that's the way my kind of my brain works and I also feel like it's a good uh, it's a good recipe for creativity to just this guy called Austin Cleon, he's written some great books and he, he kind of encapsulated in a book of his called Keep Going. And it's like you've just got to keep kind of trundling along, particularly if you're a songwriter. If you just, if you just leave it, it, it does, it's, a, it's a muscle that goes a bit kind of flabby. Um, and you need to just keep kind of banging away, writing in a journal, making little melodies, making stuff that sounds bad because eventually something will sound good. And if you just keep going, it'll happen. So... I think attaching too much to the outcome of what the songs are is is not something that works serves me particularly well. It's something I think I've got better at over the years as well. It's funny, isn't it? Though that a lot of when I was going doing all my research, a lot of the past interviews, people say, "Oh, well, you've taken a year off. Oh, you've taken three years since your last album. Oh, you've done this." It's sort of as if your life doesn't exist for them. In in real time, it's very weird, and I suppose that people have been saying that to lovely Adele, and people say that to lovely Ed. In fact, you're all very lovely, all of you guys. But but there there's that you. It's as if you don't have a life that we don't hear. It's very weird that. It's a funny thought, that isn't it? But it, it's um. I do. I think I heard Adele say something. I mean, she says it's mostly only brilliant things that come out of her mouth, actually, um, beyond just her incredible voice. But she, uh, you know, she said it takes a lot of time to do this well. And she, she's absolutely right. It doesn't just it doesn't just happen really quickly to write songs with that, that kind of power, you know, that, that she does and to put that amount of emotion into any song. And, you know, I, I know that as well. It takes a lot of time. But also, you know, she's a mum. I'm, I'm a I'm a dad. I have a, I have a family life and I take that family life really seriously. I want to do that well yeah. above and beyond everything yeah. else. And I think to um, you know finding that balance is 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 hard, isn't it? But it does. It yeah. It it takes a long time and also touring as well is the other thing. It's some people I guess tour just in one country. I, I've tended to since the beginning um, tour in a lot of different countries. So depending on how you do it if you cram it all into six months and you're away for six months I spread it out because I don't like being away from home too long so I go away three or four days at a time come home for a bit and then go away again you know I don't I don't go away for long periods of time it doesn't suit me at all that well I understand you've got to find like you say there is life outside of the albums but you're I mean your touring has taken you to some extraordinary places obviously Glastonbury and the Hollywood Bowl 
I don't know why that sort of, I think that's the showbiz side of me that just goes, wow, the Hollywood Bowl. Was it a bit like that for you? Oh, was to- it totally. And I'll tell you why. I mean, apart from the fact that, you know, it's the Beatles and Ella Fitzgerald and, you know, mm-hmm. all, all the greats, um, there's something about being in Los Angeles and playing music or doing something creative that makes you feel like you've really made it. It's just, it's just kind of built into the pavement there. Sorry, the sidewalk. Um, but also there's one of my favourite episodes of Columbo happens at the Hollywood Bowl. So that's, <laughs> I love that. So that's 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 another reason for me. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, and, and also it is you know it's outside. Um, it's kind of carved into the side of one of the you know one of the kind of canyons. That sure it's not a canyon, but that's what I think about it. It's carved into the side of the landscape, um, and it just feels yeah, it feels like you might just be you, might, you can pretend you're big time for five minutes when you play at the Hollywood Bowl. Oh, but I, and that and as I said, Glastonbury, but then of course the White House as well. And there just some things that you know, there's wonderful pinch me moments. Was the White House and one of those? It absolutely was. So um, I was asked to play for an event called International Jazz Day, which um, my hero Herbie Hancock started. Um, a, a way of kind of celebrating jazz the world over um, in a way that kind of brings the community of jazz musicians around the world together. And it takes place all over the world um, at, at different time, in different places once a year. And lo and behold, the year I was asked to take part, was they said, oh, well, because uh, uh, President Obama is a jazz fan, uh, he wants to host it at the White House. I'm like, yep, I'm there. No <laughs> worries. But I tell you what, it was, it, it was, you'd say, pinch me moment. It was absolutely a pinch me moment because I was surrounded by, you know, I was surrounded by people that I, I feel almost don't belong on planet Earth. They're so extraordinary. And that starts at the top. You know, Aretha Franklin was one of the performers um, oh my word! You know Herbie Hancock obviously was there. Al Jarreau, wow. Diane Reeves, Diana Krall, um, and just many, many kind of deeply, deeply gifted jazz musicians: Robert Glasper, Terrace Martin. Um, and I, I, I grabbed the bull by the horns. Absolutely, you know, we rehearsed uh, on the lawn of the White House. It was kind of covered over, kind of tent thing, but we got to go in the White House and. We got to meet uh, the president and the first lady um, and, again, be at the rehearsal, be in a small situation watching Aretha Franklin rehearse in her tracksuit, you know. And then we were all sung on stage together at the end. And I did suffer from a bit of imposter syndrome during that time. I did feel like I'd been beamed in there by aliens at the wrong event. Um, So I had to kind of overcome that to some degree. But um, I feel... I feel like it was one of the most pinch me moments, things that I've done, and not not just to be in the presence presence of uh, of, a, of a great, you know. I, I know there are many nuanced opinions of what someone's presidency has been like, and I know there's lots of arguments for and against. But I find uh, Obama to be a really impressive, interesting. Uh, and uh, Michelle, just yeah. what a woman! Absolutely. And, uh, you know, he was, you could tell his love of music as well. You could tell his, his real knowledge of the music. And I think, you know, obviously, obviously it's important to African-American culture and black history and bringing, bringing that sense of history to, to the White House, this music. Um, and just to, just to be, just to play a tiny part of that felt like a, a deep, deep privilege. And beyond anything else, they were both just so freaking cool. Oh, my God. I've never, <laughs> I'd never, he walked into the room. 
with the first lady and I was just like this this is what it's this is what it's like to be cool <laughs> really yeah that's fantastic yeah cool and powerful um, because also it was just so it was just so innate you know it was so innate it was hard to describe but it it it, it the presence of it hung hung in the air like a kind of beautiful fog there's that wonderful thing when somebody like that, or when the two of them, as I said, I'm a huge Michelle fan as well. Like I know her, Michelle. Michelle yeah, I like her. it. Yeah. I like that. Yeah, yeah. Mish. Um, but <laughs> when people like that walk into a room, even when you, your back is turned and you're not sure who's walked in, you feel this sort of, this electricity through the air, don't you? It's extraordinary. Yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot obviously, we attach that. a lot to them, don't we, as well? I'm sure it's, it, you know, we project a lot onto people like that. But I I think, I think for me, it it's being able to do what he did. Uh, and again, I'm not really commenting on the politics because I don't feel like I, I don't feel like I can wade in enough on politics to really understand. I, I feel like that that's uh, someone who... Um, was able to keep such a strong family life going at the same time as being the president of a, of a, of a deeply divided, difficult country or, and, you know, like the leader of the free world, I guess, and seemingly uh, uh, so together with his, his, his partner and his family and stuff. It, it's really, really amazing. And they seem to have a good time as well. They were oh, dancing. They were enjoy- it didn't seem fake, their, their enjoyment of it. It seemed like, yeah, you're, you're loving this. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. It's very interesting talking about jazz because there is this, I, I'm, I'm a, I don't know what you thought of it and you might not say, but I loved La La Land. And I, I thought it was, you're keeping quiet, that's very funny. Um, uh, but I, I loved it because it was the whole conversation about jazz and bringing jazz to people when I think a lot of people don't realise they're listening to jazz. And your show, even though on Radio 2, it is, it's jazz. But a lot of people, if they... They they just say, oh, that's music, that's real music, and I think that's what you, what you've done is you've brought. I, I I don't know what I'm trying to say. I think jazz is it has this weird headline. People have this whole idea of jazz, and you've turned it about and made everybody realise that jazz isn't just that headline of one one sound and one feeling no i really understand what you're trying to say i think it comes i think it comes can come with quite a stuffy attitude or yeah. you know there's a lot of kind of jokes connected to it and i think i think the trick is the way i've approached it is that i don't think of it as more real music than other types of music it's just a, a, a source of music that I've loved and relates to loads of other genres. I mean, I got into jazz through hip hop. I didn't yes. get into jazz yeah. through jazz. So kind of relating it back to that, first of all, people are like, oh, okay. 
And then you, you see how much jazz influenced uh, rock and roll and Motown and, and funk and through to hip hop and even, you know, into modern pop and the stuff you hear in Dua Lipa's music these days with, with jazz progressions and stuff. It's all, it's all there. So I, I kind of have a love for all genres. And I think by not treating it as this kind of rarefied thing, but also like with any kind of art form that I think is a, is a bit, has a lot of depth to it, have a bit of knowledge helps you enjoy it a lot more and I think sometimes to have to have a bit of knowledge to appreciate something can be a, can seem like a bit of a barrier to classical music or to opera which I know I know nothing about opera so I find it I can appreciate it but I feel like I would need more knowledge to really enjoy it but it's so funny you mentioned La La Land you said I went quiet because <laughs> <laughs> it's quite funny whenever there's whenever there's a, a film out that has a relationship to jazz i have people that i know say oh jamie you, you've got to check out uh whiplash oh, really? you're gonna oh my god you're gonna love oh you're gonna love la la land oh my god <laughs> and i think the problem is it's like it's like a friend of mine who saw a film about the theater once uh, who's works in the theater and he said oh my god you're gonna love it it's all about the theater and i think when things are observed just slightly off key, and I say the theatre because you know what it's like to to be in the theatre. When things are observed in a way that's a bit like, oh, that doesn't happen, and oh, people don't talk like that, and oh, that is <laughs> such a cliche, and you kind of hide behind your hands. And actually, of course, it was a good film, and of course, all the content I thought I thought it was brilliant. And same same with Whiplash, but part of me. Part of part of the the nerd in me is like, oh, that's not like that, and oh my god, people don't talk like that. And when that character said, <laughs> "I said, hey, I'll see you cats out on the road," it was like, oh my god, kill me! That's so <laughs> embarrassing. Um, but I did I did enjoy the film. I enjoyed the music, and I thought, um, you know, I, I I like I like the analogy a lot. It's, it did bring, it did make people start talking about it again. And also, it was, because I'm a massive musical theatre fan. I'm a huge musical theatre fan. Um, I grew up eating musical theatre. I just, and I still devour it now. Which modern productions have you have you loved in the last 10 years that you've seen? Oh, Come From Away. Oh, I loved Come From Away. That was oh. so good, wasn't it? It's, uh, everybody always talks about Hamilton and Dear Evan Hansen, which I think were, were, were so clever, really clever. But Come From Away is something that blew my mind. And also Girl From The North Country. Did you see that? No, I didn't see that, no. Oh. I'll have to, though. Is it, is it still, it's can I still really see beautiful. it? Do you know, I think it's in America. Obviously now things are all a bit different. But how about you? Do you, do you like musical theatre? Well, I do, it's interesting. I got into musical theatre probably through the back door in the sense that um, I loved quite a few of the songs first from the older kind of musicals. So a lot of the great American songbook stuff through getting into jazz. Um, and I think, um, you know, I, did, I was in kind of school productions of Bugsy Malone and Oliver and stuff like that. Oh, lovely. Um, and, you know, my mum and dad took me to see a few things when I was younger, but it's definitely something I've come to appreciate more and more. And, you know, in some ways I, I envisioned this Christmas album, the first part of it at least, kind of like a, a musical, The Piano Man That's at what Christmas. That's what I was leading know? to. That's what I was leading to. Oh, there you go. Yes. We're, we're, in, we're in sync. I've, I've, ruined your, I've ruined your question now. I'm sorry. No, it's perfect. perfect. Um, but, you know, I did. I, I, I watched Hamilton and felt like I should give up trying to write music or trying to do anything. No, you know? I just, no, uh, no, I just, no, no. It, I was so kind of overwhelmed by how, how brilliant it how brilliant it was. And, you know, similarly to Come From Away, I love that I took my dad to see that. And, um, I loved the through performance of it. I loved, I loved that it was kind of short, really, um, but just kind of started and kind of didn't give up. Uh, it just kind of kept, 
kept telling its story, kept kind of beating you with humanity and beautiful melodies and, and you know, this brilliant story. And I just thought it was so clever. Um, and I, 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 do, I do think in order to be really good at writing musical theatre, you have to write a lot of musical theatre. <laughs> it's not just because you're a songwriter you can write musical theatre. I think, you know, a lot of the great writers in musical theatre have just been doing it a long, long time. But then, uh, Matilda, have you taken the kids to see Matilda? Cause that's oh, yeah. Just, I mean, it would be, obviously, it's sort of in the family, but, but that, that was um, Tim mentioned coming in and doing that, and that, that was a surprise for everybody, and it's just... I know Tim quite well, and he, he is, like yourself, like a total musical theatre nerd as well, like always has been as well. So actually, in a lot of ways, I think he was fulfilling his, his, his proper destiny. I think the stars aligned, and he's deeply, deeply gifted... The source material, obviously, as we know, is one of the great yeah. children's stories of all time. Yeah. And I think it, it it fell into place and it's kind of a hard thing to replicate, really. And I, I, I can't, you know, I, I can't think of I can't think of it being better in, you know, it's a once in a lifetime uh, uh, musical, that one. It just is so it's so perfect. It is, it is so yeah. perfect. I mean, they worked so hard in it. And, you know, none of these things arrived just perfect, fully formed. But um you know, it's uh, it, uh, Tim is uh, Tim is so so gifted, and I, I love his writing. And there's so many memorable songs in Matilda. So I many memorable songs. In my head now. Do you know when you write a song? And I know that you know the the songwriter questions are always a little bit sort of in. But when you write a song, do you do you hope for a hook, or do you look for a hook, or when you have a hook, do you then write the rest of the song? It's quite hard to think exactly how it goes, but. I always have to start with something strong. So sometimes that can be a hook. Sometimes it can just be a title. If you've got a strong title, I mean, the, one of my really? wow. f- favourite songs I wrote, I just, I knew I wanted to write a song called The Age of Anxiety. Um, and uh, so I, 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 that was a title in my notebook for about six months. I thought, God, I better write it quickly before someone else uh, uh, writes it. Um, so yeah, it can, it can be a hook or it can be, something that makes me just feel sort of, that feels like it's valuable and generally if I've improvised it into the voice notes in my phone then you should assume that it has some value and then I'll sit down and I'll work on it and quite often what will happen is you'll be working on you know you'll be working on a song and you'll think oh my god this song needs a hook this song does not have a hook and it really needs one um, so sometimes then you go in search of it and I think it's hard to go in search of them, but it's, it does help when you've got a certain architecture of a song kind of mapped out and you go, well, this has got loads of good stuff to it. It's got a good beginning of a lyric. It's got a nice shape. It's got a lovely verse and the chorus has got something, but it doesn't have a hook. I think if you're in the business of writing kind of memorable or well, trying to write memorable songs, you do need one you'd need a minimum of of one <laughs> great hooks ideally you'd have a couple and um, possibly even three but um yeah you need at least one right you've just said what people say when they write a musical so that that's where i was going you've got to write it you've got to i mean there's it's it's there your music is there it's so it's there's a musical there so just anyway there we go next christmas when i uh, chat to you and on the first night of your musical which will be very exciting I would love to. And, uh, you know, the, the, the title, The Piano Man at, at Christmas, I had envis- envisioned like a... Did you, do you remember that film, The Fabulous Baker Boys? It's, it's up there in my top five all-time favourite films. Well, that, that is uh, why uh, I, I feel like a number of things in my life came together with jazz and, uh, uh, and Michelle Pfeiffer. Um, 
<laughs> but the I, most beautiful woman, apart from obviously your wife. Uh, well, I, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, but I think that it's really a case of uh, um, envisaging that kind of the the atmosphere of the story and. I tried to set that up at the beginning of that very song, The Piano Man at the Christmas, with the, you know, someone kind of trudging through the snow from kind of bar to yes. bar. Um, and I think I think there's something to be made there, kind of interconnecting the songs that were already on the album and a few more and and, 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 and building something like that. So that I, I, really, I really love that idea, but um, it's hard to get these things made. And do you know what? You'd be hard to find a successful pop star right now who's not got a musical in development. That's, that's the problem. Really? Because... It gives, you know, as a songwriter, it's so it's so disposable music these days and it moves so quickly that I think musicals really give your music quite a lot of longevity um, or can give your music a lot of longevity. Uh, so I think everyone's kind of wise to it now. I definitely don't have anything in development. There's no producers at my door. Well, I think, no, no one's Sky, asked me. <laughs> right. Get in touch with Sky now. Got it. Do the piano man for next uh, the the piano man at Christmas for next Christmas. Okay. Um, let's let's casting. Who who's gonna who's gonna play the piano man? Uh, but would you play it yourself? Hell no. Or would you have no, someone? No. Okay. Okay. No, so I, who who are we casting? Um, that's a really good question. Oh, should we just go with Brad Pitt? Should we just go straight to the no, top? No, no, too no? Predict- no, too predictable. Too no, predictable. No. Okay, Jason Schwartzman. No. Then I like him a lot. Do you know him? Oh yes. Yeah, I okay. love him. Have you got his number? Tell him he's in it. Just I have, give I have, him the part. I have nobody's yeah. number. I have nobody's yeah. number. That's we'll, not my we'll life at all. We'll get it. We'll <laughs> you got get the wrong it. guest. <laughs> no, but we'll find his number. All right. We'll contact him and say, "Hey, do you want to be the piano man at Christmas?" He'll say, "Yeah." You think and then so? It's done. Done. Well, do you know what? Calling the album "The Piano Man at Christmas." Um, I did get I did get quite a bit of abuse uh, for that, or so, so I'm told, because uh, obviously why? Because I got a lot of on on Twitter. Billy Joel's a piano man, you prick, like that. No, uh, <laughs> which is is fair enough. Billy Joel is indeed the piano man, but I was I, as I, I've tried to point out on many an occasion, this is a fictional piano man. I'm not saying I'm the piano man at Christmas. This is a a fictional. Uh, musician who goes from bar to bar you know this is Jason Schwartzman exactly Jason Schwartzman goes from bar to bar you know um, pining for the one he loves never at the party he wants to be at but getting to play at everyone's party and bringing the Christmas cheer Uh, that's yeah who's the the one that we've got to cast who's the woman in it oh I don't know I might need your help here oh Oh, uh, um, Saoirse Ronan. There we are. Oh, yes. That's a really good idea. Yeah. That's a really good idea. Okay, we got it. I see. So actually, I, as a, a, I think you're envisaging it as a movie musical first, right, rather than a stage musical. It's both. It's both. Oh. It's on Sky TV. Yes. And then it's going on stage. Okay. Do you have any connections with Sky? <laughs> I'm sure between us. This has been it. a very, very yeah. valuable yeah. experience, me being on this podcast, Gary. <laughs> very valuable. <laughs> You're the guy. Tell no. Talking about connections, just please. My favourite story about the the um, P Diddy gold Nike shoes. Oh, oh God, yeah. Okay, well, I um, back in the early two thousands when I had my album Twenty Something Out, where I was somewhat inexplicably all over the media, like all the time. Uh, me and. Amy Winehouse and Katie Mello are kind of the, the people doing this kind of jazz stuff. Uh, and um, I, w- I was at the Brits, the Brit Awards. I was nominated for, for uh, a Brit Award and I was at the Brit Awards. And it was the year like the darkness won everything, which will put, put you in the kind of era that it was. Um, and 
I had just done a cover of Pharrell's Frontin song for Radio 1, which no one had expected. I think they put me on Radio 1 thinking it would be a big kind of joke, and I ended up doing a cover of, of Pharrell's Frontin. And um, Joe Wiley, who I still uh, um, speak to uh, very often uh, in my, as she's become a friend, and she played the hell out of it on the radio. And when Pharrell was on Radio 1, she played it to him. He absolutely loved it and came to find me at the Brits. He was on the red carpet at the Brits that year. And they said, hey, Pharrell, who are you looking forward to meeting tonight? And I think no one expected the name Jamie Cullum to come out of his mouth. So I met Pharrell that night and um, Chad Hugo from the Neptunes, who I was incidentally obsessed with. I love Pharrell and the Neptunes. And they were so particularly big at that point. And um, he ended up inviting me to his hotel the next day. We hung out. We got to know each other a bit and we talked music. And he said, hey, you should come out to Miami and we should do some music together. I'm like, "Um, uh, yes. (laughs) You know, I grew up near Swindon, right? Um, So it was it was so it was so it was so amazing. I, I did. I did that. And it was it was a brilliant experience. I feel like I would have. I feel like I would have taken the experience in a different way. Now I was very, very nervous and I was, I I felt like I didn't kind of grab the situation in the best way I should have done. I felt so like I was uh, in the wrong place, even though I was so happy to be there. Um, But we had a brilliant time. I ended up playing piano and singing on his solo album in my mind, um, which was such a thrill. And we just hung out in the studio a lot. And I just kind of went, around Pharrell's life for two weeks, going to different gigs, going to different events, just being in his orbit at that time when like half of the top 10 was Neptune's Pharrell produced songs. And everyone was calling him all the time, Jay-Z, you know, like everyone, Justin Timberlake. And, you know, I was speaking to him on the phone. It was so, it was so weird. I cannot tell you how weird it was, Um, but really just a wonderful experience. And uh, I did feel like I wasn't kind of stylish enough to be to be hanging out with them. So they were all wearing, like everyone just had amazing trainers. I thought, well, I love trainers. I'm going to go and get myself an amazing pair of trainers. And he said, oh, tonight we're going to go to a party. We're going to uh, Diddy's house for a party. I was like, okay, great. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll, I'll go and um, this is when I'm going to get this amazing pair of trainers. So we're in Miami, easy to get trainers. I spent all day looking for the perfect, perfect pair of, uh, they were like Air Force One Nikes uh, with some gold on them. Um, and they're really good. They really had it was a, was a really great pair of trainers. And so we go in Pharrell's driven massive Escalade car to Diddy's house, in Miami, and it's like really exciting. I'm like, mm-hmm. oh my god, this is great. We get there, and I, as I arrive at the door, I'm to my horror, I realise it's a shoes off house. It is a shoes off no! house. So we have to leave our shoes at the door. <laughs> And I had not thought about my socks at all because my socks were Bart Simpson socks with a hole in the right big toe. Yes. yes. So I'm walking around Puff Daddy's house. I know it's not his name anymore. Diddy, Puff oh Daddy, whatever, with Bart Simpson socks with a hole in. So um, it was a lesson in humility there, that's for sure. But it was still a really fun night. The whole, the whole oh, thing I feels like a, a bizarre, brilliant dream that happened to someone else. Um, and uh, yeah, I loved it. I love that story and I love that that when you tell it there's that that you still find it all wide you're very wide-eyed about everything and when you talk about Clint Eastwood and working with Clint Eastwood on Grand Torino you also have this wonderful wide-eyed feeling about it all even though you did this and it was 
and you played at his festival. But I love that of you that you don't you just don't seem to take it for granted, and that's wonderful. Well, I definitely don't take I definitely don't take it for granted, and I also think I have a I just know how hard it is to do anything. I mean, obviously, everyone does, but. I think creatively I'm so aware in order to get as good at something as Pharrell is or as Clint Eastwood is, it doesn't happen by luck. It happens through, through, oh God, in order to do what you do, Gabby, it's like, it, it, it's hours and hours and oh, hours. Please, thank of... you very much. But really, we're talking Clint Eastwood. I'm no, no, I, I know, but you. I think, I think, Clint... I, I don't, I don't say it for effect. I, I promise you to, to, to be able to casually interview someone like you're just having a conversation, believe me, and I'm sure you know this as well, it is not a skill you just develop. It, you don't, you're not born with that skill. It's something, it's something, I mean, you can be naturally, pre-naturally uh, de- determined towards something like that, but I think it takes a lot, a lot of hours to be, to be good at something. So I'm always really grateful to be in the company of people that are really good at what they do. And, um, you know, I just, I just, I guess I just try to have fun. And I think to have fun is to bring with it some enthusiasm, some wide-eyed curiosity and some like, hey, you're lucky to be here. There's a lot of other people that could be doing this and it's you, so you may as well enjoy it and not, not, and not you know, just be, be a decent person in, in the process. Were you always like that? Were you, um, when you, you did your own album, you were 19 or something, weren't you? 18 or 19, when you did your first album that you produced, you released. Were you, were you always living for the day? Were you always wide-eyed? Were you always such a were you like you are now I know that's a strange thing to ask because I think lots of us will say no I was very different I th- well no I mean I think the things that haven't changed are that I've always been I've always had a sense of enthusiasm and I've, I've I haven't overthought stuff too much I haven't kind of thought about all the things that could go wrong with it first um, which I think is quite helpful with creative work because otherwise you kind of shoot yourself in the foot because basically things do go wrong and if you thought it would if you thought about them too much, then you'd never start it in the first place. So really with that first album, I did it because I wanted something to sell at my um, basically wedding gigs I was doing. I was doing wedding gigs and pub gigs and I was making 30, 40 quid a time. And so many people would ask me afterwards, they'd say, do you have a CD for sale? Because I'd buy one. I'm like, huh, I can make an extra 10 quid here. I can make an extra 20 quid and it doesn't, you know, if I could get some money together to record a record. So I, I, I kind of squirreled away about 400 quid of my student loan and recorded this album. In, we've recorded it in like two and a half hours or something. Um, and, it, you know, it's pretty pretty low-key, the whole thing, but I got my friend to design a front cover. And um, when my next uh, bit of my student loan came in, I used money for that to print the CDs. And uh, my my dad gave me a bit of extra money as well. Thank you, Dad, very much. Um, and so I had 300 CDs. And I sold them all in about six months. Um, and so that was the point where I still wasn't thinking about being a musician for a living at that point. I was, I was, you know, I was at uni doing English literature and film and just kind of figuring stuff out and loving music. But I didn't, I, I didn't, I was never around people that it seemed like such another world, the world of entertainment and TV and the music industry. I was... It just didn't seem like something that would be attainable in terms of being in the right place. You know, I was—I grew up in a village near Swindon. I was born in Essex. My mum was born in Burma. My dad was born in Jerusalem. You know, I got this, you know, it's just didn't feel like that. So I, I just kind of went with the ride and just worked really hard at it. Um, 
And yeah, but I mean, I guess the things that have changed, I think I feel that idea of not being too attached to the outcome is something that I felt really valuable to develop over the last kind of 10 or 12 years because it's instilled in you early on in the music industry when you're young particularly that if your album doesn't do this or if your tour doesn't do this then this won't happen and I think that's a really dangerous kind of feedback loop to get into because first of all it hampers your creativity and you know mainly hampers your enjoyment of what should be the fun part which is you know the the privilege of getting to make stuff for your job you know, it's not, a, it's, it's hard. It's, it's definitely, you work hard at it, but it's like, God, what a privilege to do that. And if you forget that, then go and do another job. Yeah. Living in the moment. I, I just get a lot of, from that, from you is that you live for the moment and you live for each day, which is such a wonderful, a perfect place to live really, let's be honest, and not think about what happened yesterday, not think about how the outcome tomorrow and just living in the moment. Yeah, I think so. I mean, i Again, it's probably not something I've overthought. I th- Although having said that about not thinking about what's happened in the past, I think I've, have, I've, I've taken a great lot of value from exploring my family history more than I have in the last few years. Um, just where they've, where they've come from and, and what challenges they face from not being from this country. And it's something that really wasn't talked about when I was younger because uh, I think it was quite difficult for them and their experience of be- being in this country and, and making all that work and stuff. Um, but... Um, so I have found that aspect of kind of looking into the past really helpful because it kind of makes you think, well, maybe that's why I feel about this, this particular way. And maybe that's where that's come from and, uh, and, and stuff like that. But in terms of if you don't, you're right about appreciating the moment. I think I've gotten better at that too. And I think there's a lot more conversation about that in the public sphere about mindfulness and about um, take enjoying the moment because the moment is what we have because you can't predict or control the future and the past is the past so yeah try and try and live in the moment and 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 appreciate what's right in front of you at that precise time one of the things we always ask everybody in the podcast is what makes you belly laugh what makes you completely lose it and giggle your guts out (laughs) what is it with you that makes you laugh definitely lots of things when my when my children use really words that I didn't know they knew in the perfect context to describe someone or like a teacher or something. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, uh, that makes me really, really laugh. I'm trying to think of an example for you. I can't think of one off the top of my head that won't offend anyone. Um, <laughs> just laughing, thinking about it now. For some reason, kind of mishaps captured on 80s camcorders. Um <laughs> Those kind of those kind of things Perfect. that used to be on um, I don't know what they were called Beatles videos or what I don't know what those kind of things are called for some reason watching watching like someone on a rope swing over over a river in, in 1987 captured on a camcorder kind of swinging backwards in the wrong way and landing on Granny's picnic table or something for some reason watching those kind of slapstick captured in situ You've mishaps. Been You've been, been framed. framed. There we go. <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah, I'm, I'm high, highbrow till the end. Oh, no, you're wonderful. You're absolutely wonderful. And congratulations on the album and all the new tracks now that are on this one as well. And I'm lucky enough to, to have sat here and listened to it all. So, Jamie, thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure. Thank you so much for listening. Coming up next week, the one and only Miranda Hart. 
That Gabby Roslin podcast is proudly produced by Cameo Productions. Music by Beth Macari. Could you please tap the follow or subscribe button? And thanks so much for your amazing reviews. We honestly read every single one and they mean the world to us. Thank you so much. <laughs>